Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. Happy 
happy, happy new year. I really hope that um, you have fun today or tonight, but also get some really great sleep and uh, wake up refreshed and ready to take on the new year um, after you hear this. So we've got a nice um, reading for you tonight, a book that is now officially in the public domain now that it's 2023, some Agatha Christie. But before we get to the bedtime reading, I just want to say that this episode is proudly brought to you by BetterHelp Online Therapy. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com sleepy and start living a better life today. Unfortunately, life does not come with a user manual. So when life's not working for you, it's very normal to feel stuck. I was stuck for many, many years until I tried out therapy and kept doing it. I obviously can still feel stuck sometimes, but now I have the tools to get unstuck, which years ago, there were times I felt that that was not going to be something that was in the cards for me. But therapy gave me those tools. It changed my life, and I guess I can only say that I wish I did it sooner. Well, BetterHelp is online therapy, where millions of people have been matched with a personalized therapist that works for them. It's convenient, it's accessible, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. So get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com sleepy. That's betterhelp.com sleepy. I'll put a link for this in the description of the show. This episode is also sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling fragrant candles or fine art prints, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. Shopify covers every sales channel, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform that's totally streamlined for social media marketing too. Packed with tools ready to help you grow, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. As an independent producer who hustles pretty hard in order to not hustle as much, I appreciate any tools that help me grow simply. And Shopify does just that for millions of entrepreneurs just like me. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com sleepy, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sleepy to take your business to the next level today shopify.com slash sleepy i'll also put a link for this in the description of the show and now i'd like to thank all of our brand new patrons on patreon.com i'm going to read all of our new patrons from the last month that i've been on vacation liz mckinnis russell brown 
Lizzie Maidman, Adelaide Hubers, Elka, Sean Kelly, Darcy Standifer, Mika Story, Diane West King, Kristen Pirtle Giles, and Donna DePanio. Thank you all so, so much. It is such a pleasure to have you as a part of making this show. I really appreciate you, and uh, your donation is an extraordinary gift going into this new year. So, thank you all so much. And for anyone who doesn't know, all the names that I just read are brand new patrons on patreon.com, which is a website where you can uh, directly support creators of the work they like. So, again, if you want to be a part of making this show and have your name read in the opening credits of the next show after you donate, go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, again, Happy New Year. Um, I love the new year for so many reasons. Um, it being a fresh start, change things up, um, go from an even year to an odd year, which I don't know why, that always is a hard transition for me to write that down on paper. But yeah, anyways, one of the reasons that I really love the new year um, as far as the Sleepy Podcast goes is because every year new books enter the public domain. So, for Sleepy listeners uh, and myself, this is kind of like, like another Christmas morning. There's a bunch of books that um, have been waiting around to be open for the world to use and manipulate um, they, uh, that happens every year on New Year. It was a big deal a couple years ago when The Great Gatsby hit the uh, public domain. You know, books like The Hobbit are still not in the public domain, but that's the kind of anticipation that uh, I get to look out for. You know, the day that I'll be able to read The Hobbit on this podcast. How cool would that be? Anyways, it's 2023 now, and a bunch of new books just entered the public domain, so I am really excited to bring you one of those tonight, and so fortunately, it is one of the best stories written by our favorite uh, mystery writer, Agatha Christie, and it is called The Big Four. So, tonight you can doze off to another wonderful mystery with our friend, Detective Hercule Poirot, and uh, hopefully fall asleep to a story that is objectively very, very interesting. You're going to hear the first two wonderful chapters of this story told once, so you can fall asleep and then they are going to repeat themselves so you can stay deep asleep. Without further ado, 
Happy New Year. I hope you get a good night's rest to this very snoozy reading of The Big Four by Agatha Christie. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1. The Unexpected Guest I've met people who enjoy a channel crossing. Men who can sit calmly in their deck chairs and on arrival wait until the boat is moored and gather their belongings together without fuss and disembark. Personally, I can never manage this. From the moment I get on board, I feel that the time is too short to settle down to anything. I move my suitcases from one spot to another, and if I go down to the saloon for a meal, I bolt my food with an uneasy feeling that the boat may arrive unexpectedly whilst I am below. Perhaps all this is merely a legacy from one short leaves in the war, when it seemed a matter of such importance to secure a place near the gangway, and to be amongst the first to disembark, lest one should waste precious minutes of one's three or five days' leave. On this particular July morning, as I stood by the rail and watched the white cliffs of Dover drawing nearer, I marveled at the passengers who could sit calmly in their chairs and never even raise their eyes for the first sight of their native land. Yet perhaps their case was different from mine. Doubtless many of them had only crossed to Paris for the weekend, whereas I had spent the last year and a half on a ranch in the Argentine. I had prospered there, and my wife and I had both enjoyed the free and easy life of the South American continent. Nevertheless, it was with a lump in my throat that I watched the familiar shore draw nearer and nearer. I had landed in France two days before, transacted some necessary business, and was now en route for London. I should be there some months, time enough to look up old friends, and one old friend in particular. A little man with an egg-shaped head and green eyes, Hercule Perrault. I proposed to take him completely by surprise. My last letter from the Argentine had given him no hint of my intended voyage. Indeed, that had decided upon hurriedly as a result of certain business complications, and I spent many amused moments picturing to myself his delight and stupefaction on beholding me. He, I knew, was not likely to be far from his headquarters. The time when his cases had drawn him from one end of England to the other was past. 
his fame had spread, and no longer would he allow one case to absorb all his time. He aimed more and more as time went on at being considered a consulting detective, as much a specialist as a Harley Street physician. He had always scoffed at the popular idea of the human bloodhound who assumed wonderful disguises to track criminals and who paused at every footprint to measure it. No, my friend Hastings, he would say. We leave that to Gerard and his friends. Hercule Perrault's methods are his own. Order and method, and the little gray cells. Sitting at ease in our own armchairs, we see the things that these others overlook, and we do not jump to the conclusion like the worthy job. No, there was little fear of finding Hercule Perrault far afield. On arrival in London, I deposited my luggage at a hotel and drove straight on to the old address. What poignant memories it brought back to me. I hardly waited to greet my old landlady, but hurried up the stairs two at a time and rapped on Perot's door. Enter, then, cried a familiar voice from within. I strode in. Perot stood facing me. In his arms he carried a small valise, which he dropped with a crash on beholding me. Mon ami, Hastings, he cried. Mon ami, Hastings. And rushing forward, he enveloped me in a capacious embrace. Our conversation was incoherent and inconsequent. Ejaculations, eager questions, incomplete answers, messages from my wife, explanations to my journey were all jumbled up together. I suppose there's someone in my old rooms, I asked at last when we had calmed down somewhat. I'd love to put up here again with you. Perrault's face changed with startling suddenness. Mon Dieu, but what a chance apovantable. Regard around you, my friend. For the first time I took note of my surroundings. Against the wall stood a vast arc of a trunk of prehistoric design. Near to it were placed a number of suitcases, ranged neatly in order of size from large to small. The inference was unmistakable. You are going away? Yes. Where to? South America. What? Yes, it is a droll farce, is it not? It is to Rio I go, and every day I say to myself, I will write nothing in my letters, but oh, the surprise of the good Hastings when he beholds me. But when are you going? Perrault looked at his watch. In an hour's time. I thought you always said nothing would induce you to make a long sea voyage. Perrault closed his eyes and shuddered. Speak not of it to me, my friend. My doctor, he assures me that one dies not of it, and it is for the one time only. 
you understand that never, never shall I return. He pushed me into a chair. Come, I will tell you how it all came about. Do you know who is the richest man in the world? Richer than even Rockefeller. Abe Ryland. The American Soap King. Precisely. One of the secretaries approached me. There is some very considerable, as you would call it, hocus pocus going on in connection with a big company in Rio. He wished me to investigate matters on the spa. I refused. I told him that if the facts were laid before me, I would give him my expert opinion. But that he professed himself unable to do. I was to be put in possession of the facts only on my arrival out there. Normally, that would have closed the matter. The dictate to Hercule Perrault is sheer impertinence. But the sum offered was so stupendous that, for the first time in my life, I was tempted by mere money. It was a competence, a fortune, and there was a second attraction. You, my friend. For this last year and a half, I have been a very lonely old man. I thought to myself, why not? I am beginning to weary of this unending solving of foolish problems. I have achieved sufficient fame. Let me take this money and settle down somewhere near my old friend. I was quite affected by this token of Perot's regard. So I accepted, he continued. In an hour's time, I must leave to catch the boat again. One of life's little ironies, is it not? But I will admit to you, Hastings, that had not the money offered been so big, I might have hesitated. For just lately, I have begun a little investigation of my own. Tell me, what is commonly meant by the phrase, the big four? I suppose it's had its origin at the Versailles Conference. And then there's the famous big four in the film world and the term is used by hosts of smaller fry I see said Poirot thoughtfully I have come across the phase you understand under certain circumstances where none of those explanations would apply it seems to refer to a gang of international criminals or something of that kind only Only what? I asked as he hesitated. Only that I fancy that it is something on a large scale. Just a little idea of mine. Nothing more. Ah, but I must complete my packing. The time advances. Don't go, I urged. Cancel your package and come out in the same boat with me. Perot drew himself up and glanced up at me reproachfully. Ah, is it that you don't understand? I have passed my word, you comprehend, the word of Hercule Perot. Nothing but a matter of life or death could detain me now. 
and that's not likely to occur, I murmured ruefully. Unless at the eleventh hour, the door opens and the unexpected guest comes in. I quoted the old saw with a slight laugh, and then, in the pause that succeeded it, we both started as a sound came from the inner room. What's that? I cried. Ma foi, retorted Perrault. It sounds very like your unexpected guest in my bedroom. But how can anyone be in there? There's no door except into this room. Your memory is excellent, Hastings. Now for the deductions. The window. But it's a burglar, that. He must have had a stiff climb of it. I should say it was almost impossible. I had risen to my feet and was striding in the direction of the door when the sound of fumbling at the handle from the other side arrested me. The door swung open slowly. Framed in the doorway stood a man. He was coated from head to foot with dust and mud. His face was thin and emaciated. He stared at us for a moment, and then swayed and fell. Perot hurried to his side, then he looked up and spoke to me. Brandy, quickly. I dashed some brandy into a glass and brought it. Perot managed to administer a little, and together we raised him and carried him to the couch. In a few minutes he opened his eyes and looked round him with an almost vacant stare. What is it you want, monsieur? asked Perrault. The man opened his lips and spoke in a queer mechanical voice. Monsieur Hercule Perrault, 14 Fairway Street. Yes, yes, I am he. The man did not seem to understand and merely repeated in exactly the same tone. Monsieur Hercule Perrault, 14 Fairway Street. Perrault tried him with several questions. Sometimes the man did not answer at all. Sometimes he repeated the same phrase. Perrault made a sign to me to ring up on the telephone. Get Dr. Ridgway to come around. The doctor was in, luckily and as his house was only just round the corner, a few minutes elapsed before he came bustling in. What's all this, eh? Burrow gave him a brief explanation, and the doctor started examining our strange visitor, who seemed quite unconscious of his presence or ours. Hmm, said Dr. Ridgway, when he had finished. Curious case. Brain fever, I suggested. The doctor immediately snorted with contempt. Brain fever, brain fever. No such thing as brain fever. An invention of novelists. No, the man's had a shock of some kind. No, the man's had a shock of some kind. 
he's come here under the force of a persistent idea to find Monsieur Hercule Perrault, 14 Fairway Street. And he repeats those words mechanically without in the least knowing what they mean. Aphasia, I said eagerly. The suggestion did not cause the doctor to snort quite as violently as my last one had done. He made no answer, but handed the man a sheet of paper and a pencil. Let's see what he'll do with that, he remarked. The man did nothing with it for some moments. Then he suddenly began to write feverishly. With equal suddenness, he stopped and let both paper and pencil fall to the ground. The doctor picked it up and shook his head. Nothing here. Only the figure of four scrawled a dozen times, each one bigger than the last. Wants to write 14 Fairway Street, I expect. It's an interesting case. Very interesting. Can you possibly keep him here until this afternoon? I'm due at the hospital now, but I'll come back this afternoon and make all arrangements about him. It's too interesting a case to be lost sight of. I explained Poirot's departure and the fact that I am proposed to accompany him to Southampton. That's all right. Leave the man here. He won't get into mischief. He's suffering from complete exhaustion. We'll probably sleep for eight hours on end. I'll have a word with that excellent Mrs. Funny Face of yours and tell her to keep an eye on him. And Dr. Ridgway bustled out with his usual celerity. Poirot himself completed his packing with one eye on the clock. The time, it marches with a rapidity unbelievable. Come now, Hastings. You cannot say that I have left you with nothing to do. A most sensational problem. The man from the unknown. Who is he? What is he? Ah, Sapristi. But I would give two years of my life to have this boat go tomorrow instead of today. There's something here very curious, very interesting. But one must have time, time. It may be days or even months before he will be able to tell us what he came to tell. I'll do my best, Perot, I assured him. I'll try to be an efficient substitute. Yes. His rejoinder struck me as being a shade doubtful. I picked up the sheet of paper. If I were writing a story, I said lightly, I should weave this in with your latest idiosyncrasy and call it the mystery of the big four. I tapped the penciled figures as I spoke. And then I started, for our invalid, roused suddenly from his stupor, sat up in his chair and said clearly and distinctly, Li Chang Yen. He had the look of a man suddenly awakened from sleep. 
Perot made a sign to me not to speak. The man went on. He spoke in a clear, high voice, and something in his enunciation made me feel that he was quoting from some written report or lecture. Li Chang Yen may be regarded as representing the brains of the Big Four. He is the controlling and motive force. I have designated him, therefore, as number one. Number two is seldom mentioned by name. He is represented by an S with two lines through it, a sign for a dollar. Also by two stripes and a star. It may be conjectured, therefore, that he is an American subject and that he represents the power of wealth. There seems no doubt that number three is a woman and her nationality French. It is possible that she may be one of the sirens of the Demimonde, but nothing is known definitely. Number four. His voice faltered and broke. Burrow leaned forward. Yes, he prompted eagerly. Number four. His eyes were fastened on the man's face. Some overmastering terror seemed to be gaining the day. The features were distorted and twisted. The destroyer gasped the man. Then, in the final convulsed movement, he fell back in a dead faint. Mon Dieu, whispered Perrault. I was right then. I was right. You think. He interrupted me. Carry him onto the bed in my room. I have not a minute to lose if I would catch my train. Not that I want to catch it. Oh, that I could miss it with a clear conscience. But I gave my word. Come, Hastings. Leaving our mysterious visitor in charge of Mrs. Pearson, we drove away and duly caught the train by the skin of our teeth. Perot was alternately silent and loquacious. He would sit staring out of the window like a man lost in a dream, apparently not hearing a word that I said to him. Then, reverting to animation suddenly, he would shower injunctions and commands upon me, and urge the necessity of constant marconograms. We had a long fit of silence just after we passed Woking. The train, of course, did not stop anywhere until Southampton, but just here it happened to be held up by a signal. Ah, sacre mille tonnerre, cried Perrault suddenly, but I have been an imbecile. I see clearly at last. It is undoubtedly the blessed saints who stopped the train. Jump, Hastings, but jump, I tell you. In an instant, he had unfastened the carriage door and jumped out on the line. Throw out the suitcases and jump yourself. I obeyed him, just in time. As I alighted beside him, the train moved on. And now, 
Burrow, I said, in some exasperation. Perhaps you will tell me what all this is about. It is, my friend, that I have seen the light. That, I said, is very illuminating to me. It should be, said Poirot, but fear, I very much fear that it is not. If you can carry two of these valises, I think I can manage the rest. Chapter 2 The Man from the Asylum Fortunately, the train had stopped near a station. A short walk brought us to a garage where we were able to obtain a car, and half an hour later we were spinning rapidly back to London. Then, and not till then, did Poirot deign to satisfy my curiosity. You do not see. No more to die. But I see now, Hastings. I was being got out of the way. What? Yes, very cleverly. Both the place and the method were chosen with great knowledge and acumen. They were afraid of me. Who were? Those four geniuses who have banded themselves together to work outside the law. A Chinaman, an American, a Frenchwoman, and another. Pray the good God we arrive back in time, Hastings. You think there is danger to our visitor? I am sure of it. Mrs. Pearson greeted us on arrival brushing aside her ecstasies of astonishment when beholding Perrault, we asked for information. It was reassuring. No one had called, and our guest had not made any sign. And our guest had not made any sign. With a sigh of relief, we went up to the rooms. Perrault crossed the outer one and went through to the inner one. Then he called me, his voice strangely agitated. Hastings, he's dead. I came running to join him. The man was lying as we had left him, but he was dead, and he had been dead some time. I rushed out for a doctor. Ridgeway, I knew, would not have returned yet. I found one almost immediately and brought him back with me. He's dead right enough, poor chap. Tramp you've been befriending, eh? Something of the kind, said Perrault evasively. What was the cause of death, doctor? Hard to say. Might have been some kind of fit. There are signs of asphyxiation. No gas laid on. Is there? No. Electric light. Nothing else. And both windows wide open, too. Been dead about two hours, I should say. You'll notify the proper people, won't you? He took his departure. Perrault did some necessary telephoning, 
Finally, somewhat to my surprise, he rang up our old friend Inspector Ja and asked him if he could possibly come around. No sooner were these proceedings completed than Mrs. Pearson appeared, her eyes as round as saucers. There's a man here from Anwell, from the asylum. Did you ever? Shall I show him up? We signified assent, and a big burly man in uniform was ushered in. Morning, gentlemen, he said cheerfully. I've got reason to believe you've got one of my birds here. Escaped last night, he did. He was here, said Perrault quietly. Not got away again, has he? Asked the keeper with some concern. He is dead. The man looked more relieved than otherwise. You don't say so. Well, I dare say it's best for all parties. Was he dangerous? Homicidal, do you mean? Oh, no. Harmless enough. Persecution mania, very acute. Full of secret societies from China that had got him shut up. They're all the same. I shuddered. How long has he been shut up? Asked Perot. Matter of two years now. I see, said Perot quietly. It never occurred to anybody that he might be sane. The keeper permitted himself to laugh. If he was sane, what would he be doing in a lunatic asylum? They all say they're sane, you know. Perot said no more. He took the man in to see the body. The identification came immediately. That's him, right enough, said the keeper callously. Funny sort of bloke, ain't he? Well, gentlemen, I had best go off now and make arrangements under the circumstances. We won't trouble you with the corpse much longer. If there's a inquest, you will have to appear at it, I dare say. Good morning, sir. With a rather uncouth bow, he shambled out of the room. A few minutes later, Jop arrived. The Scotland Yard inspector was jaunty and dapper as usual. Here I am, Monsieur Perrault. What can I do for you? Thought you were off to the coral strands of somewhere or other today. My good job. I want to know if you have ever seen this man before. He led Jop into the bedroom. The inspector stared down at the figure on the bed with a puzzled face. Let me see now. He seems sort of familiar. And I pride myself on my memory too. Why, God bless my soul. It's Meyerling. Secret Service chap. Not one of our people. Went to Russia five years ago. Never heard of again. Always thought the Bolshies had done him in. It all fits in, said Perot, when Jop had taken his leave. 
except for the fact that he seems to have died a natural death. He stood looking down on the motionless figure with a dissatisfied frown. A puff of wind set the window curtains flying out, and he looked up sharply. I suppose you opened the windows when you laid him down on the bed, Hastings. No, I didn't, I replied. As far as I remember, they were shut. Perot lifted his head suddenly. Shut, and now they are open. What can that mean? Someone came in that way, I suggested. Possibly, agreed Perot, but he spoke absently and without conviction. After a minute or two, he said, That is not exactly the point I had in mind, Hastings. If only one window was open, it would not intrigue me so much. It is both windows being open that strikes me as curious. He hurried into the other room. The sitting room window is open, too. That also we left shut. Ah. He bent over the dead man, examining the corners of the mouth minutely. Then he looked up suddenly. He has been gagged, Hastings. Gagged and then poisoned. Good heavens, I exclaimed, shocked. I suppose we shall find out all about it from the post-mortem. We shall find out nothing. He was killed by inhaling strong Prusik acid. It was jammed right under his nose. When the murderer went away again, first opening all the windows, hydrocyanic acid is exceedingly volatile but it has a pronounced smell of bitter almonds. With no trace of the smell to guide them, and no suspicion of foul play, death will be put down to some natural cause by the doctors. So this man was in the Secret Service Hastings, and five years ago he disappeared in Russia. The last two years he's been in the asylum, I said. But what of the three years before that? Perot shook his head and then caught my arm. The clock, Hastings. Look at the clock. I followed his gaze to the mantelpiece. The clock had stopped at four o'clock. Only me. Someone has tampered with it. It had still three days to run. It is an eight-day clock. You comprehend? But what should they want to do that for? Some idea of a false scent by making the crime appear to have taken place at four o'clock? No, no, rearrange your ideas, mon ami. Exercise your little gray cells. You are miling. You hear something, perhaps. And you know well enough that your doom is sealed. You have just time to leave a sign. Four o'clock, Hastings. Number four, the destroyer. Ah, an idea. He rushed into the other room and seized the telephone. He asked for Hanwell. You are the asylum, 
Yes. I understand that there has been an escape today. What is it that you say? A little moment, if you please. Will you repeat that? Ah, perfect. He hung up the receiver and turned to me. You heard, Hastings? There has been no escape. But the man who came, the keeper, I said. I wonder, I very much wonder. You mean, number four, the destroyer. I gazed at Perot, dumbfounded. A minute or two later, on recovering my voice, I said, We shall know him again, anywhere, that's one thing. He was a man of very pronounced personality. Was he, mon ami? I think not. He was burly and bluff and red-faced, with a thick mustache and a hoarse voice. He'll be one of those things by this time, and for the rest, he has nondescript eyes, nondescript ears, and a perfect set of false teeth. Identification is not such an easy matter as you seem to think. Next time. You think there will be a next time, I interrupted. Poirot's face grew very grave. It is a duel to the death, mon ami. You and I on the one side, the big four on the other. They have won the first trick, but they have failed in their plan to get me out of their way. And in the future, they have to reckon with Hercule Poirot. Chapter 1. The Unexpected Guest I've met people who enjoy a channel crossing. Men who can sit calmly in their deck chairs and on arrival wait until the boat is moored then gather their belongings together without fuss and disembark. Personally, I can never manage this. From the moment I get on board... I feel that the time is too short to settle down to anything. I move my suitcases from one spot to another, and if I go down to the saloon for a meal, I bolt my food with an uneasy feeling that the boat may arrive unexpectedly whilst I am below. Perhaps all this is merely a legacy from one short leaves in the war, when it seemed a matter of such importance to secure a place near the gangway, and to be amongst the first to disembark, lest one should waste precious minutes of one's three or five days' leave. On this particular July morning, as I stood by the rail and watched the white cliffs of Dover drawing nearer, I marveled at the passengers who could sit calmly in their chairs and never even raise their eyes for the first sight of their native land. Yet perhaps their case was different from mine. Doubtless many of them had only crossed to Paris for the weekend, whereas I had spent the last year and a half on a ranch in the Argentine. I had prospered there, 
and my wife and I had both enjoyed the free and easy life of the South American continent. Nevertheless, it was with a lump in my throat that I watched the familiar shore draw nearer and nearer. I had landed in France two days before, transacted some necessary business, and was now en route for London. I should be there some months, time enough to look up old friends, and one old friend in particular. A little man with an egg-shaped head and green eyes, Hercule Perrault. I proposed to take him completely by surprise. My last letter from the Argentine had given him no hint of my intended voyage. Indeed, that had decided upon hurriedly as a result of certain business complications, and I spent many amused moments picturing to myself his delight and stupefaction on beholding me. He, I knew, was not likely to be far from his headquarters. The time when his cases had drawn him from one end of England to the other was past. His fame had spread, and no longer would he allow one case to absorb all his time. He aimed more and more, as time went on, at being considered a consulting detective, as much a specialist as a Harley Street physician. He had always scoffed at the popular idea of the human bloodhound who assumed wonderful disguises to track criminals, and who paused at every footprint to measure it. No, my friend Hastings, he would say. We leave that to Gerard and his friends. Hercule Perrault's methods are his own. Order and method, and the little gray cells. Sitting at ease in our own armchairs, we see the things that these others overlook, and we do not jump to the conclusion like the worthy job. No, there was little fear of finding Hercule Perrault far afield. On arrival in London, I deposited my luggage at a hotel and drove straight on to the old address. What poignant memories it brought back to me. I hardly waited to greet my old landlady, but hurried up the stairs two at a time and rapped on Perrault's door. Enter, then, cried a familiar voice from within. I strode in. Perrault stood facing me. In his arms he carried a small valise, which he dropped with a crash on beholding me. Mon ami, Hastings, he cried. Mon ami, Hastings. And rushing forward, he enveloped me in a capacious embrace. Our conversation was incoherent and inconsequent. Ejaculations, eager questions, incomplete answers, messages from my wife, explanations to my journey were all jumbled up together. I suppose there's someone in my old rooms, I asked at last when we had calmed down somewhat. I'd love to put up here again with you. Perrault's face changed with startling suddenness. Mon Dieu, but what a chance apovantable, 
regard around you, my friend. For the first time I took note of my surroundings. Against the wall stood a vast arc of a trunk of prehistoric design. Near to it were placed a number of suitcases, ranged neatly in order of size from large to small. The inference was unmistakable. You are going away? Yes. Where to? South America. What? Yes, it is a droll farce, is it not? It is to Rio I go. And every day I say to myself, I will write nothing in my letters. But oh, the surprise of the good Hastings when he beholds me. But when are you going? Perot looked at his watch. In an hour's time. I thought you always said nothing would induce you to make a long sea voyage. Perot closed his eyes and shuddered. Speak not of it to me, my friend. My doctor, he assures me that one dies not of it, and it is for the one time only. You understand that never, never shall I return. He pushed me into a chair. Come, I will tell you how it all came about. Do you know who is the richest man in the world? Richer than even Rockefeller. Abe Ryland. The American Soap King. Precisely. One of the secretaries approached me. There is some very considerable, as you would call it, hocus-pocus going on in connection with a big company in Rio. He wished me to investigate matters on the spa. I refused. I told him that if the facts were laid before me, I would give him my expert opinion. But that he professed himself unable to do. I was to be put in possession of the facts only on my arrival out there. Normally, that would have closed the matter. The dictate to Hercule Perrault is sheer impertinence. But the sum offered was so stupendous that, for the first time in my life, I was tempted by mere money. It was a competence, a fortune, and there was a second attraction. You, my friend. For this last year and a half, I have been a very lonely old man. I thought to myself, why not? I am beginning to weary of this unending solving of foolish problems. I have achieved sufficient fame. Let me take this money and settle down somewhere near my old friend. I was quite affected by this token of Perot's regard. So I accepted, he continued. In an hour's time, I must leave to catch the boat again. One of life's little ironies, is it not? But I will admit to you, Hastings, that had not the money offered been so big, I might have hesitated. For just lately, I have begun a little investigation of my own. Tell me, what is commonly meant by the phrase, the big four? I suppose it's had its origin at the Versailles Conference 
and then there's the famous big four in the film world, and the term is used by hosts of smaller fry. I see, said Poirot thoughtfully. I have come across the phase, you understand, under certain circumstances where none of those explanations would apply. It seems to refer to a gang of international criminals or something of that kind. Only. Only what? I asked as he hesitated. Only that I fancy that it is something on a large scale. Just a little idea of mine. Nothing more. Ah, but I must complete my packing. The time advances. Don't go, I urged. Cancel your package and come out in the same boat with me. Perot drew himself up and glanced up at me reproachfully. Ah, is it that you don't understand? I have passed my word, you comprehend, the word of Hercule Perot. Nothing but a matter of life or death could detain me now. And that's not likely to occur, I murmured ruefully. Unless at the eleventh hour, the door opens and the unexpected guest comes in. I quoted the old saw with a slight laugh, and then, in the pause that succeeded it, we both started as a sound came from the inner room. What's that? I cried. Ma foi, retorted Perot. It sounds very like your unexpected guest in my bedroom. But how can anyone be in there? There's no door except into this room. Your memory is excellent, Hastings. Now for the deductions. The window. But it's a burglar, that. He must have had a stiff climb of it. I should say it was almost impossible. I had risen to my feet and was striding in the direction of the door when the sound of fumbling at the handle from the other side arrested me. The door swung open slowly. Framed in the doorway stood a man. He was coated from head to foot with dust and mud. His face was thin and emaciated. He stared at us for a moment and then swayed and fell. Perot hurried to his side, then he looked up and spoke to me. Brandy, quickly. I dashed some brandy into a glass and brought it. Perot managed to administer a little, and together we raised him and carried him to the couch. In a few minutes he opened his eyes and looked round him with an almost vacant stare. What is it you want, monsieur? asked Perrault. The man opened his lips and spoke in a queer mechanical voice. Monsieur Hercule Perrault, 14 Fairway Street. Yes, yes, I am he. The man did not seem to understand and merely repeated in exactly the same tone. Monsieur Hercule Perrault, 14 Fairway Street. 
Perot tried him with several questions. Sometimes the man did not answer at all. Sometimes he repeated the same phrase. Perot made a sign to me to ring up on the telephone. Get Dr. Ridgway to come around. The doctor was in, luckily, and as his house was only just around the corner, a few minutes elapsed before he came bustling in. What's all this, eh? Burrow gave him a brief explanation, and the doctor started examining our strange visitor, who seemed quite unconscious of his presence or ours. Hmm, said Dr. Ridgway when he had finished. Curious case. Brain fever, I suggested. The doctor immediately snorted with contempt. Brain fever, brain fever. No such thing as brain fever. An invention of novelists. No, the man's had a shock of some kind. No, the man's had a shock of some kind. He's come here under the force of a persistent idea to find Monsieur Hercule Perrault, 14 Fairway Street. And he repeats those words mechanically without in the least knowing what they mean. Aphasia, I said eagerly. This suggestion did not cause the doctor to snort quite as violently as my last one had done. He made no answer, but handed the man a sheet of paper and a pencil. Let's see what he'll do with that, he remarked. The man did nothing with it for some moments. Then he suddenly began to write feverishly. With equal suddenness, he stopped and let both paper and pencil fall to the ground. The doctor picked it up and shook his head. Nothing here. Only the figure four scrawled a dozen times, each one bigger than the last. Wants to write 14 Fairway Street, I expect. It's an interesting case. Very interesting. Can you possibly keep him here until this afternoon? I'm due at the hospital now, but I'll come back this afternoon and make all arrangements about him. It's too interesting a case to be lost sight of. I explained Perot's departure and the fact that I am proposed to accompany him to Southampton. That's all right. Leave the man here. He won't get into mischief. He's suffering from complete exhaustion. We'll probably sleep for eight hours on end. I'll have a word with that excellent Mrs. Funny Face of yours and tell her to keep an eye on him. And Dr. Ridgway bustled out with his usual celerity. Perot himself completed his packing with one eye on the clock. The time, it marches with a rapidity unbelievable. Come now, Hastings. You cannot say that I have left you with nothing to do. A most sensational problem. The man from the unknown. Who is he? What is he? 
Ah, Sapristi, but I would give two years of my life to have this boat go tomorrow instead of today. There's something here very curious, very interesting, but one must have time, time, it may be days or even months before he will be able to tell us what he came to tell. I'll do my best, Perot, I assured him. I'll try to be an efficient substitute. Yes. His rejoinder struck me as being a shade doubtful. I picked up the sheet of paper. If I were writing a story, I said lightly, I should weave this in with your latest idiosyncrasy and call it the mystery of the big four. I tapped the penciled figures as I spoke. And then I started, for our invalid, roused suddenly from his stupor, sat up in his chair and said clearly and distinctly, Li Chang Yen. He had the look of a man suddenly awakened from sleep. Perot made a sign to me not to speak. The man went on. He spoke in a clear, high voice, and something in his enunciation made me feel that he was quoting from some written report or lecture. Li Chang Yen may be regarded as representing the brains of the Big Four. He is the controlling and motive force. I have designated him, therefore, as number one. Number two is seldom mentioned by name. He is represented by an S with two lines through it, a sign for a dollar. Also by two stripes and a star. It may be conjectured, therefore, that he is an American subject and that he represents the power of wealth. There seems no doubt that number three is a woman and her nationality French. It is possible that she may be one of the sirens of the demi-monde, but nothing is known definitely. Number four. His voice faltered and broke. Burrow leaned forward. Yes, he prompted eagerly. Number four. His eyes were fastened on the man's face. Some overmastering terror seemed to be gaining the day. The features were distorted and twisted. The destroyer gasped the man. Then, with the final convulsed movement, he fell back in a dead faint. Mon Dieu, whispered Perrault. I was right then. I was right. You think... He interrupted me. Carry him onto the bed in my room. I have not a minute to lose if I would catch my train. Not that I want to catch it. Oh, that I could miss it with a clear conscience. But I gave my word. Come, Hastings. Leaving our mysterious visitor in charge of Mrs. Pearson, we drove away and duly caught the train by the skin of our teeth. Perrault was alternately silent and loquacious. 
He would sit staring out of the window like a man lost in a dream, apparently not hearing a word that I said to him. Then, reverting to animation suddenly, he would shower injunctions and commands upon me, endure to the necessity of constant arconograms. We had a long fit of silence just after we passed Woking. The train, of course, did not stop anywhere until Southampton, but just here it happened to be held up by a signal. Ah, sacré mille tonnerre, cried Perrault suddenly, but I have been an imbecile. I see clearly at last. It is undoubtedly the blessed saints who stopped the train. Jump, Hastings, but jump, I tell you. In an instant, he had unfastened the carriage door and jumped out on the line. Throw out the suitcases and jump yourself. I obeyed him, just in time. As I alighted beside him, the train moved on. And now, Perrault, I said, in some exasperation, perhaps you will tell me what all this is about. It is, my friend, that I have seen the light. That, I said, is very illuminating to me. It should be, said Perrault, but fear, I very much fear that it is not. If you can carry two of these valises, I think I can manage the rest. Chapter 2 The Man from the Asylum Fortunately, the train had stopped near a station. A short walk brought us to a garage where we were able to obtain a car, and half an hour later we were spinning rapidly back to London. Then, and not till then, did Perrault deign to satisfy my curiosity. You do not see. No more did I. But I see now, Hastings. I was being got out of the way. What? Yes, very cleverly. Both the place and the method were chosen with great knowledge and acumen. They were afraid of me. Who were? Those four geniuses who have banded themselves together to work outside the law. A Chinaman, an American, a Frenchwoman, and another. Pray the good God we arrive back in time, Hastings. You think there is danger to our visitor? I am sure of it. Mrs. Pearson greeted us on arrival brushing aside her ecstasies of astonishment when beholding Perrault, we asked for information. It was reassuring. No one had called, and our guest had not made any sign. And our guest had not made any sign. With a sigh of relief, we went up to the rooms. Perrault crossed the outer one and went through to the inner one. Then he called me, his voice strangely agitated. 
Hastings, he's dead. I came running to join him. The man was lying as we had left him, but he was dead, and he had been dead some time. I rushed out for a doctor. Ridgeway, I knew, would not have returned yet. I found one almost immediately and brought him back with me. He's dead right enough, poor chap. Tramp you've been befriending, eh? Something of the kind, said Perot evasively. What was the cause of death, doctor? Hard to say. Might have been some kind of fit. There are signs of asphyxiation. No gas laid on, is there? No. Electric light. Nothing else. And both windows wide open, too. Been dead about two hours, I should say. You'll notify the proper people, won't you? He took his departure. Perot did some necessary telephoning. Finally, somewhat to my surprise, he rang up our old friend Inspector Ja and asked him if he could possibly come around. No sooner were these proceedings completed than Mrs. Pearson appeared, her eyes as round as saucers. There's a man here from Anwell, from the asylum. Did you ever? Shall I show him up? We signified assent, and a big burly man in uniform was ushered in. Morning, gentlemen, he said cheerfully. I've got reason to believe you've got one of my birds here. Escaped last night, he did. He was here, said Perot quietly. Not got away again, has he? asked the keeper with some concern. He is dead. The man looked more relieved than otherwise. You don't say so. Well, I dare say it's best for all parties. Was he dangerous? Homicidal, do you mean? Oh, no. Harmless enough. Persecution mania, very acute. Full of secret societies from China that had got him shut up. They're all the same. I shuddered. How long has he been shut up? Asked Perot. Matter of two years now. I see, said Perot quietly. It never occurred to anybody that he might be sane. The keeper permitted himself to laugh. If he was sane, what would he be doing in a lunatic asylum? They all say they're sane, you know. Perot said no more. He took the man in to see the body. The identification came immediately. That's him, right enough, said the keeper callously. Funny sort of bloke, ain't he? Well, gentlemen, I had best go off now and make arrangements under the circumstances. We won't trouble you with the corpse much longer. If there's a inquest, you will have to appear at it, 
I dare say. Good morning, sir. With a rather uncouth bow, he shambled out of the room. A few minutes later, Jop arrived. The Scotland Yard inspector was jaunty and dapper as usual. Here I am, Monsieur Perrault. What can I do for you? Thought you were off to the coral strands of somewhere or other today. My good job. I want to know if you have ever seen this man before. He led Jop into the bedroom. The inspector stared down at the figure on the bed with a puzzled face. Let me see now. He seems sort of familiar. And I pride myself on my memory, too. Why, God bless my soul. It's Meyerling. Secret Service chap. Not one of our people. Went to Russia five years ago. Never heard of again. Always thought the Bolshies had done him in. It all fits in, said Perot, when Jop had taken his leave. Except for the fact that he seems to have died a natural death. He stood looking down on the motionless figure with a dissatisfied frown. A puff of wind set the window curtains flying out, and he looked up sharply. I suppose you opened the windows when you laid him down on the bed, Hastings. No, I didn't, I replied. As far as I remember, they were shut. Perrault lifted his head suddenly. Shut, and now they are open. What can that mean? Someone came in that way, I suggested. Possibly, agreed Perrault, but he spoke absently and without conviction. After a minute or two, he said, That is not exactly the point I had in mind, Hastings. If only one window was open, it would not intrigue me so much. It is both windows being open that strikes me as curious. He hurried into the other room. The sitting room window is open, too. That also we left shut. Ah. He bent over the dead man, examining the corners of the mouth minutely. Then he looked up suddenly. He has been gagged, Hastings. Gagged and then poisoned. Good heavens, I exclaimed, shocked. I suppose we shall find out all about it from the post-mortem. We shall find out nothing. He was killed by inhaling strong Prusik acid. It was jammed right under his nose. When the murderer went away again, first opening all the windows, Hydrocyanic acid is exceedingly volatile, but it has a pronounced smell of bitter almonds. With no trace of the smell to guide them, and no suspicion of foul play, death will be put down to some natural cause by the doctors. So this man was in the Secret Service Hastings, and five years ago he disappeared in Russia. The last two years he's been in the asylum, I said. 
but what of the three years before that? Perot shook his head and then caught my arm. The clock, Hastings. Look at the clock. I followed his gaze to the mantelpiece. The clock had stopped at four o'clock. Only me. Someone has tampered with it. It had still three days to run. It is an eight-day clock. You comprehend? But what should they want to do that for? Some idea of a false scent by making the crime appear to have taken place at four o'clock? No, no, rearrange your ideas, mon ami. Exercise your little gray cells. You are miling. You hear something, perhaps, and you know well enough that your doom is sealed. You have just time to leave a sign. Four o'clock, Hastings. Number four, the destroyer. Ah, an idea. He rushed into the other room and seized the telephone. He asked for Hanwell. You are the asylum, yes? I understand that there has been an escape today. What is it that you say? A little moment, if you please. Will you repeat that? Ah, perfect. He hung up the receiver and turned to me. You heard, Hastings? There has been no escape. But the man who came, the keeper, I said. I wonder, I very much wonder. You mean, number four, the destroyer. I gazed at Perot, dumbfounded. A minute or two later, on recovering my voice, I said, We shall know him again, anywhere, that's one thing. He was a man of very pronounced personality. Was he, mon ami? I think not. He was burly and bluff and red-faced, with a thick mustache and a hoarse voice. He'll be one of those things by this time, and for the rest... He has nondescript eyes, nondescript ears, and a perfect set of false teeth. Identification is not such an easy matter as you seem to think. Next time. You think there will be a next time, I interrupted. Poirot's face grew very grave. It is a duel to the death, mon ami. You and I on the one side. The big four and the other. They have won the first trick, but they have failed in their plan to get me out of their way, and in the future, they have to reckon with Hercule Poirot. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.